Go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them. And if you don't, there's Bibles underneath the seats. And uh, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7. We're going to pick it up there this evening. The book of Romans is really a description, a deep description, a layered discussion of the grace of God. And the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter. This is a sample of when, we, when you go through the book of Acts, what he would be going to these different towns and teaching. He'd be teaching them this. He'd be teaching them all about how Jesus came to set them free. And so as we start off the book of Romans, just as a, as a reminder, he starts off talking about sin. And he does that in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And basically, as he's dealing with this issue, this is really where we need to start. We need to start with a, a proper understanding of who we are as human beings in this world before God. What's our status? What's our relationship with God? What's our relationship with the world? And so he starts off just really with an understanding of, of mankind, of, of humanity. And he starts off by saying that there are unrighteous sinners, immoral sinners. And as you read through verses 18, chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, you, you really get a description of, of what's going on in our world. It's, it's plain, it's simple, it's godless. And whenever there's a godlessness, there's a vacuum that's created for sin to come. So a lot of times we're always looking for answers and how can we fix this and how can we make things better. And it really comes down to godlessness. And the answer for that, of course, is godliness. So then he goes from the immoral person that's obviously a sinner. And then he starts to talk about moral sinners, people that are moral, outwardly having a, a outward form of righteousness. And then he begins to discuss that there are people like that, that they're, they're moral on the outside, but they're sinners. And then he begins to discuss that there's religious sinners, People are very religious, but they're still sinners too. And then he talks about the skeptic, the, the person who's always questioning God and doubting God and trying to poke holes at everything about God. And he's, he's saying they're, they're sinners. And the conclusion of all that is found in chapter 3, verse 10, where it says there are none righteous. Just settled. There's no one righteous. No one good. No one that seeks after God, we're all products of the fall, we're all descendants of Adam, inheriting the sin nature of Adam, and so, so the, he, he leaves us in a very uh, difficult, precarious position until verse 21 of chapter 3, and from chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 21, he talks about the answer. And uh, I love how chapter 3, verse 21, 
changes the tone as you go through these verses and he talks about the sinful condition and the sinful nature of man. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, but now, the biggest but now that there is in the Bible, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe there is no difference. And so then he begins to discuss salvation. Chapter 3 of the book of Romans, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21. That's an area I want to encourage you to spend a lot of time in. Because this is where God and what He has done for us is explained in detail. And there's these words like propitiation and justified and redeemed. And He's using as much language possible to express the depth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so as you, you begin and you're reading about the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, and you feel hopeless and stuck, but also you realize that, well, it explains it so much, and, and there's so much to, to gather from that about mankind and humanity. And he sa- says, but now, and then he begins to just open this door of explanation of what Christ has done for us. And he explains that our righteousness then is something that uh, is outside of us and is gained through Christ, through another person, not in and through the law, but in and through a person. So it shifts the story from what man is and what man does to who God is and what God does. And that's what grace is. Grace is about what God does and has done. And our access to that is by faith. And so it just completely wipes out any idea of works or earning or merits or anything that we would think that we would need to do to be right with God completely wipes that out. And he even goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the patriarch Abraham. And he says, even Abraham, he believed God. And because of his belief in God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Then he even goes back to David and how David talks about blessed is he whose sins have been forgiven. And so he sets this tone of salvation. And as you read those verses, you're just caught up in this amazing grace of God that he's bestowed this amazing work of God upon all who would believe And talks about our standing in God, which he calls being justified. So, in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, he's explaining our position before God through our faith in Christ is a position where he's declared us righteous, justified. That's what justified means. He's declared us righteous based on the work of Christ. And then we get all the benefits of being righteous. 
all the benefits of God, the favor, the blessing, the goodness, the relationship with God. So our standing, our position before God is one of being justified, meaning we're restored in that relationship, we're right with God, we're in a condition with God that's based on what He has done and not on what we have done. And as He explains that, then we get to chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39. That's kind of where we're going to, we're going to start in chapter 7. But now He's talking about something called sanctification. So in other words, after we're saved, what do we do? He goes through this uh, argument for some who would think that when you're forgiven, then it doesn't matter what you do anymore. So shall we sin so grace may abound? That's what he says. So in other words, what he's saying is, well, if when we sin, it really shows how good God is because of His grace to forgive us, then shouldn't we just sin then? So God's grace would seem even better? And he says, certainly not. That's not how it works. In other words, he's saying, if you've truly been born again, forgiven, have a new standing with God, he begins to explain our relationship with sin is different. And that's because we're different. When we are saved, so different words for that, I'll use justified, saved, forgiven, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, what else we got? Born again. Those terms are all the same thing, meaning we're, we're changed, we're different. So what happens is not only are we forgiven, but then He gives us a new heart. Something changes to where we desire God. We desire to want to please God, to want to walk with God. So our new nature is such where we're not a slave to sin anymore, but we're a slave to God. Before we were a slave to sin. So sin would tell us what to do, and we'd say, okay, and we'd do it. And then when we got saved, then our relationship with, with sin changed, where sin, we're not a slave to sin anymore. God has broken the, the bondage or the dominion of sin over us. He's broken that, and now we're slaves to God. So as slaves to God, then we, we do what God wants us to do. In other words, that God's our boss. Before sin was our boss, now God's our, our boss. And this is what sanctification is. So different than justification. So justification is an instantaneous act that happens where we're changed the moment we put our faith in, in Jesus Christ. It's like that. But sanctification is what happens after that. That God begins to work in us to change us over our whole lifetime to make us more like Christ. In other words, He works in our lives so that our position in Christ as justified matches our practical walk with Christ or our life in Christ. And that takes a whole lifetime. So sanctification is a process, justification is not. So now he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about what happens after we're saved and how our relationship, in chapter 6, he talked about how our relationship with sin changed. We talked about that last time. Our relationship with sin changes. 
And now he's going to discuss in chapter 7 how our relationship with the law changes. And so the, the discussion, and just so we kind of get an understanding, it's, it's really intense. It's, it's, it could cause some circuits in your brain to melt, just as a forewarning. So if I seem a little melty, that's why. But the, our relationship with the law, meaning some outside rules or traditions or ideas or philosophies that will run a person's life. Specifically, we can look at it as the Ten Commandments, but it's much more than that. Everybody has a sort of a, a code that they live by, and everybody has one. But particularly, he, he's dealing with, with people now that have been saved and, and believe, and now God is working in their life to sanctify them. And so does that mean that, say, for example, the Ten Commandments, so how do we deal with those things? Or the expansion of the Ten Commandments in the moral code, but even more is, is what everybody's individual moral code is. What's our relationship to that? That's what he begins to explain. So hopefully that gives us a little runway into what we're going to talk about tonight. So look at verse 1 of chapter 7. And right off the bat, he tells us who he's talking to. So he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So, can you turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 14? Because if you don't get chapter 6, verse 14, you'll have a hard time really understanding the rest of this chapter because he's really explaining chapter 6, verse 14, which says this, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So what he's saying is, to the believer, something changed in your relationship to sin. So your relationship to, to sin changed. That's what, one of the big things that has happened. And he explains that that relationship to sin... What's changed is a switch in dominion or control or power. That's what dominion refers to. So again, he says, For sin shall not have control or power or ownership over you. Why? For you are not under the law, but under grace. So the reason sin is not your boss anymore because sin had to work in conjunction with the law in order to bring about the effects or the proper working of sin. And law, you can let's just look at it as rules. So without rules or standards or barriers or anything 
to refer to if something's right or wrong, then sin has no power. It needs the law to have power. Does that make sense? So, if there's, there's, with, there's no sting to sin if you're not breaking any laws. So the Ten Commandments came in. We'll use those just as reference. But also we have a moral code intrinsic to who we are innately. We are wired with the right and wrong. So now he's saying because of our new position in Christ due to our faith in Christ, this radical shift changes where now, now the law, it doesn't have a place in our life because we're now under grace, meaning we're under the favor of God that's not conditioned on what we do anymore. It's conditioned on what He, he has done. That's what grace means, unmerited favor. So now, go to verse 1 of chapter 7 and understand Then this is what he's talking about. He's talking about now the change that has happened in our relationship with the law or rules or codes or moral right and wrongs. So he explains it like this in regards to the law. The law has no dominion over a man as long as he lives. But in the explanation of that, he says for the, uh, uh, the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. So now he introduces this idea in regards to our relationship with the law as saying that we are dead to the law now. So this, when, when a Christian is new in Christ, they have to understand then how a Christian grows, how a Christian continues the sanctification process. And the mistake that we see, and Paul points this out in the book of Galatians as well, is that as one would say and acknowledge that they are saved by what Christ has done, then after that, they would think, now it's up to me and what I do to grow in God, to be sanctified. And he's dealing with that. And he's saying, that's not how it works anymore. Probably most of us have been or are being sabotaged in our faith over and over again because now we think it's, the burden is on us to be righteous and holy in our walk with God. And as we try to do that over and over again, we keep falling and stumbling and messing up and we get frustrated and we just want to quit. So he's answering the question as a born again believer, then how do we actually go about our life 
and grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How do we be more godly? How do we get closer to God? And he's saying it's not by having rules that we live by. And the way he explains that is he's saying like two people that are married, when they're married, they're legally bound together. So in order for there to be some disconnect from that legal binding, a person has to die. So if someone dies and it frees that person who's alive, it frees them from the marriage. Death frees them from the marriage. So if that's the case, then you have to think about the law the law is, is perfect, and it's not going to die. The law is, imagine being married to someone who's perfect. At first, you'd think, oh, that's great. But being married to a pers- perfect person would be annoying. Because they're perfection would think that you should also be perfect. So you would be constantly feeling defeated being married to this perfect spouse because they would never do anything wrong and you'd realize I'm always doing something wrong. And you'd feel defeated, but you would see this standard and you would, you would understand, wow, there's this, this perfect husband or wife that I have and and I'm just always falling short of that what am I going to do and you'd feel guilty and you'd feel condemned and the only answer would be for that spouse to die there would be no way to get out of that relationship with the law unless someone died and Mr. or Mrs. Perfect they're not going to die the law doesn't die but we when we die We're no longer bound to that relationship. And so that's what he's saying is how our new relationship with the law is. And then he begins to explain that even more in verse 4. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. So how are we dead to the law? He says, through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him, who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So this is just so amazing. The more you think about it and contemplate it, uh, contemplate it that law, which was really you can look at the righteousness of God which has been sort of codified and given to man in the Ten Commandments. But like I said, it could be just our driving principles of life, whatever code or or thing we live by. But just to help us really understand, just think about trying to do good based on the Ten Commandments to try to be right with God and the frustration of that and the realization of that. And, you know, many people, if you go through church history, they went through great lengths to try to beat the sin out of themselves. Asceticism. asceticism. 
when they beat their bodies and try to punish their flesh. And this was a practice that, that many people did because of the realization of their sin and wanting to get rid of it, but not knowing how. And it says right here, the way you do that is you identify yourself with Christ who died. How do we identify ourselves with Him? By faith. So if we put our faith in Christ, we too spiritually have gone through what Jesus has gone through on the cross. So we identify with Him on the cross. So we die. That's why a verse I say a lot, but in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. So what does He mean by saying that? He means that by our faith in Christ, we have died to that old self. And so it's by faith he's saying that we too have died. That old person is dead. That old person is in a coffin. And so now the new person is free from the law that bound that person to the marriage. So, so now you just have all in this discussion, you have an understanding of a human being, of God, of the law that God gave to show what is necessary to be right with God, and that would be to fulfill the law perfectly because God has done that. God is holy and it's sin that separates us from God. And so the law basically was a, an instrument that God used to show us our true condition and inability in and of ourselves to do anything about our sinful condition. And so we have to die. But if we die, by identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ, what we're basically saying, it's no longer I who live. That old person is dead. And that's what happens when we get saved. And notice at the end of verse 4, then the, the purpose there is that then we should bear fruit to God or that now because we've been changed in our relationship with the law and our relationship with sin, now we have the opportunity to actually bring forth fruit to God or please God that through our life. So how do we do that? By being good and doing good things? Careful. He's saying that we're dead to that. No, that's not how we do that. What do you mean? It seems so weird. Well, let's just keep reading. So he says in verse 5, For when we were, past tense, in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members or our body parts to bear fruit for death. So that's what happened before. Before our nature was such that it was controlled by sin. Sin was our master. And our, our sinful desires told us what to do. And then what is the relationship between sin and the law? He tells us here. So the law comes in, or a rule, and the rule that comes in messes us up even more because when we, th we think we're pretty good people. And then you say, you, you express to a person 
that in the Ten Commandments, it expresses what is necessary for us to be right with God. And then you begin, the, the, the law comes in or the standard or the rules where you thought you were a pretty good person. All of a sudden you realize I'm not because I'm not to covet, it says in the Ten Commandments. Oh, no, I've coveted before. I've wanted something that someone else had. I get jealous of people. Oh, no. So before that, before my acknowledgement or my understanding of the law, it was great. I could hate people all I wanted. I could be jealous until I looked totally green with envy. But as soon as someone came to me and said, do you, do you realize that covetousness is a sin? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, no, it's not. What are you talking about? I'm going to get mad. And then you know what I'm going to do after that? I'm going to say, well, everybody does it. And you know what I'm going to say after that? Well, I'm just human. That's, what, that's almost every time that's what's going to happen. But this is what the, the law does. And, and when you begin to explain these things to a person you will actually start to see true conviction and this is important because a a lot of times there's a gospel message that's put out to where it says that if you just say this prayer you'll be forgiven and it doesn't matter anything that you do after that Paul's dealing with all of these things. So to truly be forgiven is to be changed from the inside as well. And when you're changing the inside, your relationship with sin is different. Before, you liked it. Before, you were into it. Before, you would share it with people. You would brag about it. But when you got saved, all of that changed. So your, your nature is such to where now you, you don't think it's funny anymore. You don't, you're not proud of it. You don't brag about it. And so because of that, he's saying your life now has changed so much where now you, you think about this so radical. You, you can actually have coming from you things that bear fruit to God or things that are a blessing to God. You and I can bless God through this fruit that comes through our life. It's amazing. But then in verse 6, he says, but now we have been delivered from the law. In other words, don't get into your mind that by keeping the law, that's how you do it. And that's, that's a very common mistake. Someone who's all fired up about the Lord and they get saved and and then they go about I'm just going to you know throw all these albums away and maybe you need to do that but and I'm going to just I'm going to you know just live as a monk in a monastery and I'm going to you know do all these things just be careful with that because watch what he says now that you have been delivered from the law so it's not about rule keeping anymore why he says having died you're dead to that, that system, that way. And you should know that as much as you tried to be good by doing good things, it didn't make you good. You still did bad things. 
So he says, having died to what you were held by, so that we should serve, here it is, in the newness of the Spirit. That's the key. That's how we do it, and not in the oldness of the letter. So that's the whole thing right there. The whole thing is what happens when we get saved, we are transformed, and now we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has dominion over our life. And as we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So how do we battle the flesh? How do we overcome the flesh? Not by trying not to overcome the flesh, but instead by walking in the Spirit. So when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So that's how you do it. Let me read that again. But now, verse 6, we have been delivered from the law. So it's not about rules and all that. Having died to what we are held by. And by the way, that's miserable. Realizing how bad we are. And yet at the same time, not being able to do anything about it. And then he says that we should serve. How do we serve now? In the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So it's by the Spirit. The newness of the Spirit. This is, this is where it really gets exciting. And this is where, as a church, it's really important that we acknowledge and understand that as, as a church, we don't want to become legalistic or driven by rules. We want to be driven by the Spirit. So in verse 7, what should we say? Is the law sin? Or in other words, so after understanding, is, is the law bad then? He answers that question. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. So is the law bad? No. But what is the function of the law? It's to expose our true condition. The law is, is an exposer. That's what it does. Without the law or rules, and, and this is interesting because people often think they, ha they can get around and they have some sort of a escape from the things that we're talking about here by just ignoring the law and, and saying, well, things like, well, we're basically animals, so we should be able to just do, we should be free to do whatever our impulses tell us to do. But in order for someone to say that, they have to say there's no right and wrong. And everybody knows there is a right and wrong, whether they admit it or not. Because if you just keep questioning a person about that, you realize that they actually do have a, a standard of right and wrong as much as they want to deny it. Because we're wired like that. God made us with the conscience. So as he, he begins to just unravel this and get us to, to understand, he continues on this, this discussion of how, how it works in regards to the law and how we should be looking at the law. He says in verse 8, sin took opportunity. 
by the commandment, produce in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. So he, he's saying this is something really amazing about human nature. When we're told don't do something, it makes us want to do it. Because naturally, in our sinful condition, we're rebellious at heart. So we, we naturally want to rebel against a rule, rebel against right, rebel against something. And it just it's so obvious in little kids because they don't have a filter. So little kids, you, you tell them something that's right, and they're going to tell you no. Even if it means it's, they're going to get killed if they do it. You know, don't jump in the pool. No, I'm going to jump in the pool. Well, you're going to die if you jump in the pool. They'll still want to jump in the pool. But a lot of times, you'll see with, with kids, you have to keep giving them, giving them consequences. So you have to escalate your demands to them. You ha- you, you'll say, don't do something. And most of the time, they're going to rebel against that. And then you take it up a notch. Well, if you do this, this is going to happen. And then if they still rebel, then you say, well, if this is going to happen, then you have greater consequences just so they kind of get it in their head. But that's not just little kids. That's all of us. That's how we're wired. When you get to be an adult, you can just cover it up a little better. You're more sneaky about it. You think you are. You have a filter. You know things are proper and things aren't. When you're a little kid, you don't know that. So the best way to discover your own sinful condition is to work in children's church. And then you'll, then you'll know. You'll never have an argument that we're basically born good. And no children's church worker in the history of mankind ever thinks that. But when the law comes in, in verse 8, it says it produced all manner of evil desire. In verse 9, he says, I was alive once without the law. And basically what he's saying is, he's saying before I, I understood what I was doing was wrong. And again, that's what happens a lot of times when we point out things that are wrong and say, our friends, or our family members, you start to point out some things, they're going to be upset because if you don't point those out, they're, they're, they're in, they have more, more peace about it. But at the same time, they're ruining themselves and going to destruction, but they're doing it more peacefully. That's why a Christian often experiences reproaches from other people Because the Bible tells us that the reproaches that were meant for Christ will fall on His people. So you and I often will experience reproaches or anger or hostility from other people because they're really mad at these standards that don't allow them to just do whatever they want. And they just want to live according to their fleshly nature and they don't ever want to be feeling bad about that. They don't want someone to make them feel bad about that. So you'll find yourselves getting in some very weird situations without even trying to. 
Will you experience hostility from someone without even saying anything? But they'll sense the Holy Spirit and un- they'll, they'll sense the light in you and you'll experience hostility. You'll be like, what's, that? what's wrong with that person? Why are they so upset at me? And then a lot of times they'll start verbalizing, oh, you think you're better than me or you think, and you don't think that at all. I don't know too many Christians. I know there's some, but I don't know too many that actually literally think they're better than another person. Christians really realize they're not good. They're forgiven. They're not good. But you, you experience that hostility, and this is why. Because you're representing some kind of moral standard or something in their life that they have tried to get rid of. They have tried to cast it off, and that's what hedonism is all about. And you look through history, and you find these different movements of people wanting to live completely free. And every one of those societies that do that, the Bohemians and these hedonistic philosophies, they end up doing horrible things to one another. We have a, a we see it all the time. But do you remember they had this autonomous zone and? I think it was in was it in Seattle or Portland or something. Do you remember that during the like 2020 that this place so like okay we're gonna have this autonomous zone it's gonna be completely free, no cops in here, no rules, no laws. Everybody's gonna do whatever they want. And so you think, oh man, well let's see how that works. But we already know how that's gonna work. Next thing you know, there's all this violence there. I saw uh, footage of uh, a person that was preaching Christ and they did tackle them and they're dragging them out there. Unbelievable. Murders, rapes and everything. But it's because a lack of an understanding of the true condition of the human heart. If left to itself, we need laws. We need boundaries. We need things to keep us in our own sinful condition. We, as sinful people in the world... You have to have laws, you have to have rules, you have to have um, things to manage the people, you have to have police, because we understand the sinful condition of human hearts. And because of the sinful condition of human hearts, if left to itself, it is destructive. Because the nature of sin is me first, and destruction, and do whatever it takes to promote myself and make sure I win. I'm on top, and if there's no standard, no rules, no laws, then who could ever say anything is wrong? You could justify every single action and activity by saying, well, that, I just, that's what my heart felt like doing. Don't put a trip on me. Don't tell me what to do, that sort of thing. So God's instituted, just to, for humanity's sake, these different ways to control the sinful condition of man and he's done that through the church he's done that through families and family accountability he's done that through the law and he does that through government but government is always a balancing act between freedom and law and that's what we're experiencing in our culture now because of godliness and the inability of people to live godly lives which by the way brings productivity brings blessing 
brings love, brings civility, brings peace, brings joy, builds, all those things. Sin does the opposite. So when that happens, government has to be more controlling. If men can't control themselves, then government will have to do that. It's always this balance between that. And I believe because of the godlessness of our nation, that's really the problem. It's godlessness. So as the churches empty out, as the churches become heretical, as the church models or what people think is church is more like the world and more like entertainment, not built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and humility and the cross and surrender. But see, when you have a civilization decaying like that, it's very predictable what's going to happen. And so the answer is always to return to God. Because godlessness, or godlessness causes all unrest and uncivilization, and godliness does the opposite. So we can be praying for godliness, that our churches would fill up with people who love the Lord and are hungry for the Lord, that our churches would have the Bibles front and center to see what God says and what God wants, and we would begin to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way things are going to change. That's the only way. And, and this is all pointed out here. He says in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. I didn't fully understand it. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. It messed me up. The law messed me up. It made me aware of my own condition. So in verse 10, he says, And the commandment, which was to bring life, I actually found it to bring death. Because the commandments that came, they showed the standard of what is good and right before God. When Paul understood and realized that standard, he actually died at the realization that he couldn't fulfill that. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the guys, the religious guys, who would do everything he could to live according to these religious standards. And he said in the book of Philippians, he said, I count everything a loss but, the, but for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All this law, all this ruling, saying here, it just messed me up. Once I realized how bad I was and I couldn't be better, it really messed me up. So in verse 10, he says, And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking the occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good so there we go so the the law is not bad we are bad the law is good it just can't make us good and that's what paul thought when he became a pharisee 
that the law could make him good. And the more he understood the law, the more sin was excited in him and the more defeated he was. So what would Paul do? He'd probably do more law. It's not working, so so I'm going to do more law. And I'm going to do more things that he would think for God. And, of course, the Lord arrested his heart when he was actually on his way to drag women and children and men that were Christians out of their homes and take them to the synagogue to trial to, to kill them. And it was there that the Lord met him. And as he was introduced to Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything changed. It all changed in a moment. And he's explaining that. So in verse 13 it says, Has then what is good become death to me? Or, yeah, has then what has become good death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So you see the recognition? Because of the law, he realized his own condition, and he realized that sin owned him. He was a slave to sin. And remember, it's when Paul is talking about this, it's not like he was living a life where he was looking for prostitutes and looking for bars and things. He was erring on the side of self-righteousness. Not in lewd behavior. He was, he was he's saying all this, how, how sin was so bad in him because the law came and he realized how bad he was. He was saying that as someone who's trying to be good. Someone who cared. And so he's exposing the error of self-righteousness. So it's not just loose living. That is one thing. But it's also religious, pharisaical legalism, trying to be right with God through our own acts of righteousness. And he's saying when the law came, the law was spiritual. What does he mean by that? He means that the law wasn't, I just didn't kill my neighbor. The law is deeper than that than I wanted to kill my neighbor. Even desires, lustful desires, he would say that those things just demonstrate that I'm sinful. The things that that I thought, my my inside life. So the, the law wasn't just, I didn't cross this line. The law was the realization that inherently, intrinsically, that we are sinners. And that some some people can cover it up better. Religion actually is used to cover up sin in many cases. But we can cover it up. But at the same time, on the inside, it doesn't change our condition before God. And he's saying that the law is spiritual. And 
It, it exposed who he was and what he was doing. So in verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Carnal means fleshly, driven by my fleshly desires, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. So here's the dilemma of someone going through sanctification. The dilemma of someone going through this process where the Holy Spirit works in their life is now that their new nature is such where they recognize sin for what it is, and yet there's still sin that occurs. But Paul is saying, I'm doing things I don't want to do. And if you're a believer, you know exactly what that means. Because you so desperately want to be right with God and want to please God. But in reality, you know that you're not doing that. And so this is what he's explaining, this practice of things he, he doesn't do, but he, he hates that he does them. So in verse 16, he says, if, if then I do what I will not to do, so I'm doing something I don't want to do, that means I agree with the law that it is good. So here's a revelation he's having. And again, this, this can be uh, in regards to loose living or legalistic li living. So he, he could be, be saying that there are, are things religiously that he's doing, but he also could be saying there's things that he's not quite measuring up religiously. But however you want to look at it, what, he, what he's saying is, I, I know now because... I'm a saved person and I've been transformed. He says, now I have understanding of the, the perfection required by God. And he's understanding that I'm not able to do that. And as a person is not able to do that, you could see his nature changing. That when he became born again, his nature changed where he's recognizing that he's not able to do the things that he wants to do, but he knows he wants to do. He wants, he has a desire to do that. And for him, he's saying that's uh, how he knows that he's been changed. Verse 17, he says, But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that's dwelling in me. So he's speaking of a, a person who's positionally washed justified in Christ, forgiven of his sins, a person who has been made right with God and he's realizing that. And so then the, the living out of his life, he's also realizing that even though his inward person is redeemed, that there's parts of his self that are not redeemed, like our flesh. Did you know your flesh is not redeemed yet? Your mind is not redeemed yet. So, if you think about that, now as he's going through the sanctification process, 
he's beginning to realize and he's understanding he's expressing something the difference between being positionally right with god justification and then sort of the pain that we go through in the sanctification process or after we're saved as we're growing in god so there's this continual development of this life in god and this realization that not all of me has been redeemed, but only that inside person. So in verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells there. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find that. What a dilemma, huh? So this is amazing because he, he's just coming to these conclusions and he's teaching this amazing doctrine about the unredeemed flesh and the practical aspects of living in this world as one who's redeemed but yet has a body that's not redeemed. And then he, he's trying to explain and wrestle with the, the idea, well, how, what do I do then? As a Christian, as someone who's saved, then I, I feel this conflict between my spirit and my flesh, and there are things that I do, and I don't, I don't want to do them, but I'm struggling with them. And that this is what he's explaining. So in verse 19, he says, For the good that I will to do, I don't do it. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Verse 20, now, if I do what I will not to do, so if I'm doing things I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. I find then, I find a law. That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, meaning a changed person on the inside wants to do good, but then the actual execution of that is very difficult, he's saying. He says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's a sign of a change in his heart. But I see another law in my members, my body parts, warring. You might want to underline that. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members... And then he finishes with this. And then he, he just, I, I feel like he's just belting out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who? Notice that. You might want to circle that. Who, not what. Remember, we're talking about a, a believer's relationship with the law. We're dead to the law. 
but the realization of this struggle of an inward redeemed person. And by the way, that's who we really are. Right? We're not a body. We're a spirit. We use the body as spirits. But he's saying my spirit is redeemed, justified, all those things that we looked at in the redeemed section. But then practically this struggle that our flesh is not redeemed. Are you guys going to be glad when your flesh is redeemed? So when is your flesh redeemed? Well, if we get raptured, it'll be redeemed like that. If you take your last breath, it'll be redeemed then. But one day our bodies will match our inward person. What a day that will be. So we won't have this struggle anymore. So he says again, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then, with the mind I, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And I just want to get the first verse of chapter 8. Therefore, there is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll finish there. I wish we had a chance to get into chapter 8 because he takes what he just said and goes from there. But chapter 7 is the struggle. And chapter 8 begins and it expresses how our position in Christ is safe and secure, but yet the practical aspects of our life, that's something that we struggle with and that God will continue to help us grow in that sanctification. It's all done by the power of the Spirit and not by willpower and trying not to do things and trying to fight the flesh. It's done by walking in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the flesh. But with all of that struggle, you have to know if you are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. It's done. You know why? That all happened on the cross. It all happened. He took our condemnation. So if you're a believer in Christ, we struggle with life in this world, but positionally, we, there's no more condemnation. That is done, paid for, signed, sealed, and delivered, and I'll give you a, just a little way to understand that. See this little three by five card? I put it in my Bible. That's me and you. You don't see it. What do you see? My Bible. This is how God sees us now. He sees us in Christ. And so that can never change. And then. Chapter 8 starts with there's no condemnation. You know how it ends? There's no separation. That's chapter 8. So you have to wait till next week for that one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who had come tonight and those listening online. I pray that these amazing truths that are just really uh, it must be discerned spiritually and understood spiritually. They are very lofty. But uh, hopefully, Lord, that we can, by your spirit, know and trust and understand that these things that 
you've brought to our attention and they would make sense to us. I pray that we'd continue to pray them into our life, into our heart, into our understanding. And most importantly, Lord, I do thank you that as we stand in you, Christ, there's no condemnation. Even when we struggle, even when we fight and war against these bodies of death that we carry that are so attracted and so prone to sin that we are in you, Christ Jesus, and that you have forgiven us of all of our sins, washed us, justified us, and we can't wait for the redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, Lord, may we walk in the Spirit victoriously as more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. I finish early, so next week I should get a little credits. Six minutes added on to my tab next week. Sound good?